Thank you, Father, for the privilege to look at your Psalter this morning. Help us to understand uh, this psalm and help us to understand how the world is interacting with your Bible more. Uh, More importantly, help us to understand how you interact uh, with your people uh, through covenant. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So I open up this by saying that Psalm 78 is one of the longest psalms in the Psalter, which it is. Um, And yet, even reading Psalm 78 out loud takes less than seven minutes. So I figured we'd start with that. Not that I'm trying to uh, spend our precious time, but this is a good way to spend our precious time. Uh, This, as far as genre, I've been trying to get you to be sensitized to what kind of genre we're in whenever we approach a psalm, and this is a historical storytelling psalm with wisdom elements. Um, So it's recounting history, but for a reason, theological reasons, and then also it has wisdom elements. We can see that right at the beginning. Uh, Give ear, O my people, to my teaching, incline your ears to the words of my mouth, and I will open my mouth in a parable and utter dark sayings. Those words are all wisdom words used in the corpus of wisdom literature in the Bible. So even though this is in the Psalter, it's, you ought to think about this as like a wise sage sitting you down to rehearse uh, Israel's history and try and draw lessons out of it. So <clears throat> let me read this, and we'll read the whole thing. So it'll take a few minutes. You can follow along, or you can just listen. And uh, it recounts uh, quite a bit of Israel's sacred history here. So give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. And I will open up my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children. But tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel. And he commanded our fathers to teach their children that in the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. And that they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. The Ephraimites, armed with the bow, turned back on the day of battle. They did not keep God's covenant, but they refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had showed them. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt and the fields of Zoan. He divided the sea and let them pass through it. He made the water stand like a heap. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud, and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness. He gave them drink abundantly, as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. And yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God with their heart by demanding the food that they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table? In the wilderness, so he struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also get bread or provide meat for his people? Therefore, when the Lord heard he was full of wrath, a fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. 
And yet he commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven. And he rained down on them manna to eat, and he gave them the grain of heaven. Man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he let out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them, and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned. Despite his wonders, they did not believe. So he made their days vanish like a breath, and their years in terror. Vanish like a breath, that's the same word there as we were looking at this morning. Um, And when he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. And they remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. But they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant. And yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again, and they provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt, his marvels in the fields of Zoan. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of the streams. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave their crops to the destroying locusts and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks to thunderbolts. He let loose on them his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress, a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death. He gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the first fruits of their strength in the tents of Ham, Then he led his people out like sheep. He guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid. But the sea overwhelmed their enemies, and he brought them to his holy land, to the mountain which his right hand had won. He drove out nations before them. He apportioned them for a possession. He settled the tribes of Israel in their tents. Yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep his testimonies. But turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked him to anger. With their high places, they removed him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath and he utterly rejected Israel. He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind. He delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on their heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from a sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. He rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim. But he had chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built a sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, took him from the sheepfolds and from the following, the nursing ooze. He brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. 
And with upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. All right, so there is that long uh, storytelling parabolic uh, psalm. And um, so, you know, whenever you're writing a book, you always have to think about the overall length. And unfortunately, uh, the publishers sometimes act like Marxists, so they're always wondering about the economy of the whole project. And uh, so... um, You get to Psalm 78, and I'd committed to about 10 to 12, 13, 14 pages per chapter, and I'm going, well, obviously I can't do a detailed exegesis of the whole thing. So uh, since this psalm deals a lot with history, um, I decided to use it as an opportunity to educate the the general audience for whom I'm writing, the ever-ubiquitous educated layperson, um, um, what's going on in the academy and in the mainstream right now with regards to understanding the Bible, which is so different from how we often understand the Bible and its historical basis. So in the first section, before we get into that, let me just say the main theme I want to circle back to, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on this uh, in the first few paragraphs, but the main theme Uh, I think that can be pulled out of this psalm is that um, God is not silent in the middle of adversity and rebellion among his people, uh, but how he answers their rebellion is with compassion. So, for example, this can be seen especially in 37 and 38. You could hear that in the rehearsing of the historical events. So, Even though they had been unfaithful, God still shows himself to be faithful. Uh, Even though, in most drastic terms, when they created the golden calf, they were basically committing adultery on their wedding night. And, you know, as Moses descends from on high and sees what they're doing. And that's just the start of their long, rebellious history against God. And remember... Their history is our history. They are like human beings written in miniature. So even though there's many particular things about them that we ought to learn as we study Israel's theocracy, the particular chosen people of God, they're also a reflection of uh, uh, what we are, what we would have been if we were in their shoes and that kind of thing. If, If you hadn't noticed that before, that makes the story come alive and also uh, shepherds our heart to realize, but for the grace of God, there we would go and be just like them. So I think 37 and 38 captures the gist of the overall theological message of the psalm about how faithful God has been despite their faithfulness. Their heart was not steadfast towards him. They were not faithful to his covenant, yet he being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. He did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. So um, now let me do a little bit about the discussion with regards to history because this isn't just for those of us who happen to be in a guild in a profession where we have to deal with this all the time and interact with people that don't have the same convictions about God's word that we, we do. But what I'm telling you is what basically has trickled down into the weeklies into Nova shows, into National Geographic, into, you know, the professionals that are interviewed 
for Time Magazine op-ed pieces that occur once a year on the Bible and that kind of thing. And so this is the fishbowl in which we all swim, even if you haven't noticed it. I'm not, I'm not bludgeoning you with some kind of specialty work or something that you should all be equipped so you can educate those college students when they return on vacation at Christ URC because, you know, they're out there with the infidels getting uh, toxified. This is everywhere, okay? Uh, and, um, you know, so it's in the news, it's in the weeklies, and... Um, <clears throat> So, uh, there was a movement in um, understanding Israel. So, we go way, way back to patriarchs and then to Moses with the deliverance from the Red Sea. Um, You may not have heard this, but uh, not a lot of people think there's any historical veracity to the exodus from from Egypt. Okay? and um, that this event really happened, as opposed to being a story that was dreamed up by a bunch of people during the Hellenistic period to justify the national existence of Israel, okay? This would be somewhat analogous to, let's say, it's disanalogous, but, you know, if we didn't know about all the pilgrims landing up in the Northeast or all the Irish Scots folk landing uh, down in Virginia, you know, in our own history, then you might think the, the kind of thing I'm saying is, you know, well, we, we want to justify our national existence, so let's write a story about that that has lots of legends of heroes and, and conquest and that kind of thing. Something like that is what a lot of people believe with regards to the Exodus. Sadly, something like that in recent years is also what a number of uh, academics believe about the monarchy. So fast forward from 1400 or 1200, depending on how you date the Exodus, uh, all the way to the 8th, 9th century, you know, with Israel as a monarchy. And so the notion is that all that didn't really happen. It It happened because of uh, certain writers in the Hellenistic period, 400, 300, uh, who are also writing up these stories to justify the national existence uh, of whatever Israel comprised at this time. Um, So you can read about that. A little bit more conservative view, but not completely, is another notion, I didn't leave much room up here, so I'll just tell you and then you can look on the papers, it's what's in vogue these days to talk about memno-history. So you can hear a mnemonic device there, memory. And, and here the idea is that there's a vestige of historical memory that's in these stories that these events so very far removed from what we read in the Bible and in time from us that there may be some vestiges of something that really happened there, you know? So we can look in some uh, cooperative e- for cooperative evidence in contemporary literature in the Egyptians and the Hittites and the Assyrians and see that there were diseases. There was some kind of people group that emerged out of Egypt. Not nearly the kinds of numbers we see in the Bible. There's no evidence for that in the Sinai Desert, you know, that, you know, these millions of people would have left traces and such and such and such. But nevertheless, we can call that mimno-history because there might be some residuals there of something much less fantastic that was later dressed up to be what we have uh, in 
our Bible. So I talk about that on page two. Um, so instead of getting into all this, which isn't as edifying as looking at the heart and soul of Psalm 78, I find all this to be um, a stretch. And here's why. So instead of getting, I mean, these are smart people, and they're just trying to make the best according to their light to the evidence they see. It's not always because they hate God. Many of them are archaeologists. They don't see the evidence archaeologically, okay, but absence of evidence doesn't necessarily uh, discount uh, the legitimacy of the story. Um, in the Bible, um, the Exodus is constantly appealed to for consolation of subsequent generations. And, and it, it basically goes like this. I've been doing this in my sermons, but, but now I'll be quite, uh, when I touch on the Exodus, but now I'll be quite explicit about it. So, you know, let's say, you know, God forbid, you know, um, something's happened to you that, that life is just a wreck right now. And so I try and bring you encouragement by saying, you know, I, I can understand how life seems oppressive right now and this is going on, it's weighing heavily on you, but think about what God has done in the past. I mean, you know, with this tyrant Pharaoh and all his epigonies and, and minions, you know, oppressing God's people and, 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 and yet he delivered them and finally humbled Pharaoh and, and crushed them in the sea and now they stood. So, the psalmist, even in the Asaphic Psalms, is constantly alluding to the Exodus for consolation for the present generation based upon what God did in the past. Therefore, it makes no sense, <laughs> in my mind, to think that this is some kind of fictional story that somebody dreamed up you know, to justify their national existence because of what I see the scripture writers doing later to console the present generation and even generations in the future, okay? You step into the pastor's office and you unburden yourself about, you know, some deep distress that's going on and, and I say, well, okay, you know, and I listen and I don't, I don't do the, the bad pastoral thing, just quote Romans 8.28, but I listen. <laughs> and then I, but then I say, now be a good courage, brother. Because God has done amazing things in the past. Let me, you know, help you remember. Um, and, and he can act that way now, too, or into the future. Well, let's flip it on its head and just for argument's sake, say that these are fictional stories. All this never really happened. You know, it's the product of the imagination of these very creative guys in the Hellenistic period. But I want you to draw courage and, uh, and, and strength from that, even though it never really happened. But, you know, focus on the beauty of the story and, and the heroes. And, now, does that make much sense? And I'm not trying to just be dismissive, high-handed, and not deal with their honest heart, but that makes no sense to me. And, and, and um, you know, this is Tremper Longman's basic argument for the historical veracity of the Exodus, and I think it's pretty good. And he's taken a lot of hits for, regardless, those of you know who I'm talking about, regardless of what your view is on his views on other things, I think that's a pretty good observation. And, uh, you know, so 
It's not that we're fundamentalists, that we you know, bury our heads in the sand and don't ignore the difficult problems. But, you know, when we look at Scripture and we see the way that the Scripture is using some of these historic events to encourage present suffering saints to persevere, it makes much more sense to, to, to uh, believe that the things as they're described really happen, even though they're literarily shaped and theologically shaped. Does that make sense? And by the way, as far as historically shaped and literarily shaped, good, because that's part of my goal. You know, apologetics is not just defending the faith of pagans. Apologetics, first and foremost, as J.G. Machen said, is to strengthen your own faith. Okay? And so, so uh, um, um, I, I, I think that's really important. And, but don't, don't stick your head in the sand with regards to the problems, like I'll, I'll mention here. You may have noticed as we were reading the psalm, these are not in historical order. So scripture all over the place does not have a problem presenting real history in dischronologized sequence for theological reasons. Still historical, even though the literary and theological shaping may mess with the details in the sequence. With the sequence of the details. Make sense? Good. It's nice to follow in the footsteps of Mike Brown. (laughs) Because in a lot of churches, that claim would be very controversial. But anyway, um, all right. Um, Let's get to the psalm. Um, You can see an outline there uh, I give you, okay? And uh, also the point on that page with the outline, uh, what I just said about the historical events not being in chronological order. Uh, But now what I would like to do is uh, focus on another aspect of Psalm 78 uh, that's quite striking, uh, that this psalm is very uh, involved, even though it's a historical narrative and parable, It's also very involved in teaching us about the function of the Mosaic Covenant during the administration of the Covenant of Grace. And um, and it's using that backdrop, even though it's not completely on the surface and explicit, it's using that backdrop in order to teach people about how God was dealing at this particular time with this particular people, namely the Israelites, Uh, who are the apple of his eye. So that's what I'm talking about when I get here to the point, understanding Psalm 78 and its relation to the Mosaic Covenant. And uh, so what I'm going to do now in the next uh, 10 minutes um, is talk about covenant theology. Not all of a sudden, okay, we were soaring pretty high this morning on getting a grasp of Kohelet overall. I was trying to get you to have a kind of method of interpretation for the book so you can be edified by it later when you turn to it on your own for study. And so I guess on that simply we're doing that here with Psalm 78, but Psalm 78 is quite clear in its interaction with, with the role of the covenants. So, uh, and again, some of you had the benefit of Mike Brown's instruction through oral teaching and also his and Zacchaeus writings. Other of you did not. So some of what I'm going to communicate to you in the next 10 minutes is new, um, um, that's okay, all right? 
Um, you don't get your, uh, so now we're not just going for the milk, we're going for the meat. And you don't get this um, right away sometimes, okay? And that's, that's okay. Um, but let me, let me chat for about 10 minutes and then I'll leave some time to ask questions. So first of all, um, the Mosaic Covenant, which is alluded to here, uh, is an administration of the covenant of grace as Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7, section 5 and 6 say. However, whenever you're talking about the Mosaic Covenant, it's important to talk about the Mosaic Covenant. So remember, here I said it's administration of the covenant of grace. Okay? But the Mosaic Covenant isn't all about grace, merely. Okay? It's also about works. What do I mean by that? I'll explain. Sometimes when the Westminster divines um, are talking about, you have to distinguish between the Mosaic Covenant as the covenant that was made with the Israelites at Mount Sinai and the Mosaic economy. In other words, the Mosaic period when the Mosaic Covenant was being used by God uh, in order to work and relate and reveal uh, and convict uh, the people of God, Okay. And sometimes when the Westminster divines talk about the Mosaic Covenant, they do so by way of synecdoche, and that's just a literary term that means the part for the whole, where they're just referred to the whole Mosaic Covenant as law, the law. And when they say that, you can virtually think, oh, you're talking about the Mosaic Covenant. But they just talk about they just say law. Now, why do they do that? Because the Mosaic Covenant is marked out so much by um, stating the law in all its boldness and baldness, if you will, even though it's a part of the administration of the covenant of grace, that they're very comfortable moving uh, that way. Okay, that's a very, very important point. Uh, even if you're not familiar with the Westminster Confession and Catechisms, that's okay. Your three forms of unity teach the same thing, all right? Three forms of unity is much more pastoral. Yes, I said that. <laughs> and, uh, but the Westminster Confession of Faith is in some ways much more precise uh, theologically, all right? Now, when we turn to Psalm 78, uh, what's very interesting here, if you look at the quote under that heading, if you have the paper, it says, the song clearly has been influenced by the blessings and curses of the Mosaic Covenant traditions because Israel's fate is seen as completely dependent upon her obedience or disobedience to the covenant. Close quote. Now, you just go, well, I thought Protestants were all about grace. <laughs> so how can their obedience and the outcome of their obedience uh, be so wrapped up in the consequences of their blessings or curses? particularly their tenure in the land, because God wanted to, to teach them through types and shadows during this particular period that someone has to offer positive righteousness to God in order to receive the approval of God. Now, if this all sounds very heady, it is, and complex, it is, but I'm, I'm going to try and make it as simple as possible. Maybe I'll be, do it 
by way of being a little provocative to grab your attention. How many ways in the Bible are there to be saved? Some men say two. There are two. You can be saved by grace through faith, or you can be saved by law. The problem is no mere human being can fulfill the law in order to receive God's approbation. Like the rich young ruler who comes and says, what must I do? Well, you know, love your neighbors yourself and love God. It's like, oh, yeah, all this I've done. Uh-huh, sure, <laughs> right? But hypothetically, um, if, if, if he really had fulfilled the law, then it would be just for God to reward him with the blessings of the covenant, uh, obedience, and to receive the Father's approval. The problem is no mere human being this side of the fall can do that. So this is what we call a works principle, okay? which simply means uh, stipulations, demands for obedience with sanctions attached, either curses or blessings. So when you hear sanctions, don't just think North Korea, negative. Remember, we're talking theology, so think either blessings or curses. Okay, now let me explain the chart. Ugh, all right. In the covenant of redemption years, years ago, yeah, in fact, way back in eternity, <laughs> before creation, God made a covenant in the Godhead between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Although in most estimations of this covenant of redemption, most theologians will talk about the God, the Father made a treaty with God the Son, but actually probably more responsibly, especially uh, based on the work of my departing colleague, John Fesco, uh, the Holy Spirit was part of this transaction as well. So in this covenant, it's based upon works. The Father says to the Son, uh, I want you to fulfill the demands of the covenant, and if you do so, you will justly be rewarded. And the reward will be your people, whom you die for, and fulfill the requirements which upcoming Adam, first Adam, failed to do. That's a works covenant. The covenant before the fall was also a works arrangement. Do this, you know, eat of this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will die. Implication, and Reformed people have always understood it, the flip side. Um, uh, you know, don't, don't do this. Don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Fulfill it, and you will live, okay, the reverse. And you will go from a state of only Adam and Eve had this, not being able to sin and being able to sin. The only human beings in the course of history who ever had that ability to sin or to not sin. Once they fell, they were not able not to sin, which means they were, Kyle, double negative. Come on, you're the mathematician. Yeah, it's positive. They were only able always to sin, right? That's our condition, but for the grace of God who restrains us sometimes. But Adam had not got to the highest place. The highest place is not being able to sin. What you're all going to be when you get marshaled into heaven in the world to come. You will not be able to sin anymore. 
Adam hadn't gotten there. Well, when he failed, he ain't getting there. <laughs> but we need somebody else to get us there. Because guess what? Uh, salvation is not merely about the penalty-paying substitution of Christ, what we call his passive obedience, blood. It's also about his active obedience. Someone has to go before God and say, I did this, I fulfilled all righteousness, I fulfilled the stipulations of your law. Well done, good and faithful servant, and now you be blessed. So at the fall, all that ends with the covenant of grace from now until the return of Christ. It's all about grace. Individual election, that's the only way a human being gets in by having an other-looking faith to the merit of Christ, not our own merits. Because none of us can personally, perpetually, and particularly, perfectly fulfill God's law. Nobody. Well, no mere human being. There is one human being, who also happened to be God, who can do it. And so now, in the covenant of grace, all through the Abrahamic covenant, even in the old kingdom, uh, there's not another way of salvation in Israel. The only way any Israelite would get into heaven is by faith in the Messiah to come. All the way down to the church age. Um, but now what happens is, in the kingdom of Israel, you have a works principle introduced that's typological. So all this stuff about do this and you will live, don't do this, you will die. Uh, do this and you will be the head, your enemies will be the tail. Do this and your goats will have fat udders and you'll have lots of agricultural blessing. And you'll stay in the land, see their obedience, their tenure in the land. For this particular covenant administration, typologically, was based upon the people maintaining a level of fidelity such that they would be signifiers to the world round about them that they really were God's people. But Moses told them beforehand, Deuteronomy 31, you're going to fail. You're not going to do it. <laughs> so why is this there? Psalm 78 has all these conditions, all these expectations. Somebody's got to fulfill the law of God because Christ comes not only to fulfill the... Uh, um, the obedience which Adam failed to fulfill, Christ also comes to fulfill this works principle that's modeled during the Mosaic economy because no true son of Israel fulfilled it. But Matthew says Christ fulfilled all righteousness because he not only fulfills uh, and, and, and reverses the disobedience of the first Adam, he fulfills the righteousness that was expected of every true son of Israel such that now he can receive the approbation, the approval of the Father. He can merit salvation and entrance into the true tabernacle and church and presence of God. And guess what? If you trust by him, by faith alone, and not in your own merit, then his merit becomes imputed to you so that he sees you as if he's looking upon Christ's merit. And when you get to 70 AD, everything changes for Israel. There's not two ways of salvation. If you say to Israelis now uh, that Christ is coming to you, apart from faith and the demands for faith, 
with another, you know, second trajectory program for you just because you're Jewish, that's not loving your neighbor. Put it bluntly, you're greasing the skids for them to go to hell. Because at the end of the day, the only way any human being gets into the world to come is by faith in the one true son of Israel. So this is not replacement theology, which may be helpful to some of you. This is fulfillment theology. God designed this all along so that the church uh, would become the fulfillment of what Israel is a picture of. And then when Christ comes back, Sabbath is here. And uh, all, all his achievement through his own merit uh, is now recognized when the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of our Christ. And there's no longer all the tension we were talking about this morning. Christ was born under a woman, or born, yeah, uh, born of a woman, the incarnation, Paul says. Born under the law, just like Israel. Why? Because someone has to keep the law. In order to, Paul says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, to redeem us from our sins and to make us sons of God. You need satisfaction and penalty playing blood and atonement. But you also need righteousness from somewhere. (laughs) And Christ does that. So back to the psalm. That's what the psalm is really placarding and showcasing. Israel failed again and again and again. And wonder of wonders, God was compassionate again and again and again because he had this whole meta plan that he was fulfilling of which Israel was a part. But now he has a better covenant than the Mosaic covenant because that scaffolding has served his purposes. So now he takes the scaffolding down and go, we're going to make sons and daughters of a new covenant. Like a writer to Hebrews says, a better, a more perfect covenant. Because it's not fracturable. It can't be broken. Because God is the one who's the agent who fulfills it all. All right, 15 minutes. Uh, <laughs> I tried for 10, but uh, maybe a couple minutes for questions or clarification. I gave you a... A fire hose worth, sorry. But that's really what's back behind this psalm when it talks about God's faithfulness and Israel's unfaithfulness. Yes? Why don't they? Right. Right, right. The, we, ought, we ought to answer that humbly, I think, first. But I, I, I do, uh, you know, here I am teaching it in a church at the invitation of your officers. And I did not guess this in seminary except from one person. Meredith Klein. It's, it's all over our Reformed heritage. But when I was a student at Westminster, it was a very different faculty then. I don't mean any disrespect to my professors then, but they did not teach it. Meredith Klein taught it. 
And I, I left confused. I had to go figure it out on my own. But he's right. So part of the answer is, and again, I'm sorry, I'll, I'll appeal for, uh, to Westminster Confession of Faith. Chapter 1 of Westminster Confession of Faith says you arrive at doctrine through two ways. Either through proof texts. In other words, you know, we, t- we teach something like the virgin birth. And then we go to proof texts, Isaiah 7 or other places, that support that. Okay? Or the Gospels that talk about the Holy Spirit coming upon a virgin, da 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 da, right? Or, secondly, by good and necessary inference. Now, listen to what the divines say. In other words, it's a logical entailment when you bring together numerous other uh, scriptures that may not individually teach the whole doctrine, like the Trinity. But when you bring numerous verses together where the Trinity seems to be in view, and then, and then these, these other verses cohere with one another to teach that, oh, we're talking about three persons of the Godhead here, look, who are equal in substance and power. You know, like the baptism scenes. Got God the Father pronouncing the blessing, God the Son, and then you got the Holy Spirit coming down. That's a classic example. It's not crystal clear right on the surface, but if you realize we arrive at doctrine through those two ways, either through immediate proof text or through comparing Scripture with Scripture by good and necessary inference. So, honestly, it's a complex answer to your question, but part of it is people don't know their history. Part of it is um, people are relying too much on only the previous one, a kind of simplistic reading of the Bible with just proof texting. And they don't realize that we may have logical entailments in the Bible that are like triangulation. When you have different points and bring them together, then it's incumbent upon you to teach that or believe that. Is that helpful? Right. Well, Well, think of it like this. I think you can go to individual proof. How do you make sense of the high priestly prayer when Jesus says, I came to do what you gave me to do, Father, and it is done. Uh, John, I'm paraphrasing, John 17, verse 4 and 5. I came to do the work that you gave me to do. This makes perfect sense out of that proposition and that prayer that our Lord offered his heavenly Father. But notice it's works. Grace is not merely unmerited favor. It's unmerited by us, but it's got to be merited by somebody. You have to have positive righteousness to satisfy the absolute just demands of an all-holy God. The law and its breach has to be satisfied. And the beauty of that is when people get a hold of this, they, you know, that's why J.G. Manchin on his deathbed Last words, John Murray, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. No hope without it. So this is all about the active obedience of Christ. It's not all about the active obedience of these Israelites. They're just the types. It's meant to point forward to the greater son of Israel, namely Christ himself. Is that helpful? Good. Praise God. All right, one more, and then we better uh, close it up. Right. 
the works principle always existed in these various covenants. So it's better to talk about a works principle because historically, if we talk about the covenant of works, we're historically locating that here. This is a covenant of works too. This is not a covenant of grace. There's no need for grace. Grace occurs in an environment or a soil where there's been transgression and a breach of the law. Okay, this is pure justice. Quid pro quo. Do this and I'll give you this, your reward. Namely, your people that you win, right? Okay, uh, this is not merely quid pro quo. It's rather um, um, uh, what's called ex pacto merit. Merit defined by the definition of the covenant. The terms of the covenant. So maybe I'll say one more thing and then I better let you go. So often the objection on the other side, even in our own circles, is, well, are, do you mean if Adam had fulfilled what God commanded him to do, then, then, then God would have been obligated to reward him according to the you know, sanctions that he had stated? That's exactly what I mean. If you tell your kids to clean their room, not just girl clean, but guy clean. No, I mean not just guy clean, but girl clean. Uh, <laughs> And you say, I'll give you five bucks when you're done. And what if they do it, and it's girl and guy clean, like just pristine, and you don't give them the five bucks, what are they going to do? They'll cry foul. Okay. So you know who answered this? A Roman Catholic. Thomas Aquinas. See, the argument is, if a human being comes and says, I did what you asked me to do, now give me my just desserts, then that necessarily entails a creator-creature confusion. But not if the creator, who is the suzerain of the Lord, has set the terms of the covenant. Then there's no confusion and no diminution, no diminishing of his authority. He's just doing what he agreed to do. It's perfect justice. Make sense? Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would seal these truths unto our heart, even as they come through beautiful uh, literature arranged to uh, instruct your people, such as the Psalms. Uh, ultimately, Lord, uh, these kinds of truths, when they are sealed to our heart, make us steadfast in our um, trotting to the heavenly city. So we pray, Lord, for your mercy, your pity. Help us to understand these, not as mere an intellectual exercise so that we might cleave and cling to your son. Uh, we have nowhere else to go. Um, we do pray this in Jesus' name, amen.